my name's Pastor Andy. Welcome to Antioch Church. I'm delighted that you're here with us today. Quick bit before I get into a teaching series of James. We had Joseph Z ministering with us last week. A lot of questions, a lot of good questions. For me, it was a tremendous time of prophetic ministry. Now, if you have any questions about the biblical basis for that, go to 1 Corinthians 12, read through to 1 Corinthians 14. Use a study Bible and just see what that means. An Old Testament prophet would call people back into covenant faithfulness with God. That meant if you're kind of walking outside the way he wants you to walk, the prophet says, hey, come back or it's not going to go well for you. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the role of prophet, gave us that one-on-one connection with God. And so New Testament prophecy, that gift, is calling out people's identity in Christ. So part of spiritual growth looks like loving God with everything that we have. And the other part looks like becoming more and more like Christ. And so he spoke on different people and called them out with that. My own personal one, it was really spot on for me. Um, I'm gonna, it's on Facebook. You can catch the video. I'm going to write it down. It will be of use to me uh, to look at in the future. As different things are happening, as discouragements kind of take course in your life, you know that God has spoken truth over you. So typically what happens, Jesus' ministry is to set the captives free. And those prophetic words will set people free into their identity in Christ. If you have any more questions or concerns, I'd love to chat. It's not a salvation matter, your view on prophecy, but you're going to find this church hard to bear in that we're spirit-empowered. The thing that matters about salvation is who Jesus is, the historical person of Christ and how we respond to him. We major on the majors, which is the gospel, so our beliefs are the Apostles' Creed, but other than that, uh, there's a wide diversity of beliefs here. Is anyone else toasty? Hands up if you want the heating turned. (laughs) Do we have control with the heating anywhere? No. (laughs) I'm glad I just made everyone aware of how hot it was. Apologies. I love Saturday mornings. Ever since I came to the States, one of the reasons is my big idol in life is soccer and soccer results. And you can't get live soccer matches in England. I came to the States and you have it on regular TV at 9 a.m. And so I would either watch games or I'd follow, if my team wasn't playing, just the text results. I loved it. It made me feel amongst people that understood me. Like, they know why it matters so much if someone handballed and it's the worst thing in the world. They know why it's the best thing ever when England progressed a little bit in the last World Cup. So I feel like I really belong. Saturdays got even better recently, genuinely. As men, we meet Saturday mornings, 8 to 10 at the church office, watch one of my favorite ever TV shows, Band of Brothers. If you don't know anything about Band of Brothers, it, watch it. If you don't like war, don't watch it. Uh, Band of Brothers was a TV series that came out in 2001 based on Stephen Ambrose's book called Band of Brothers, and he interviewed different people. He interviewed different people that served in the war and together pulled out a TV series from it. I, I remember that the company is called Easy Company, This follows this group of soldiers, but they're actually the 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division from Ohio. 
Easy Company. And we follow them over 10 episodes, from jump training in episode one in the States, they're getting ready for war, all the way through to the 10th episode where victory happens. And in the first episode, they're getting ready to jump onto the beaches in Normandy. It was the biggest operation ever undertaken. And they landed on the beaches in Normandy. And we watched this group of people become closer and closer together as they have all of these trials of life. We know that lots of unexpected things happen, but when they have each other, they can get through them. Now, my plan on watching it was for guys just to have a good time to watch it together, and then we discuss the film. Like, what examples of leadership were there? Uh, how do people respond to fear? If you are a guy, we'd love you to come along. We have four more episodes. The hard thing about watching it is at any point, there's lots of battles happening as they've landed in France, and then they're going through Europe to try and win back and take over Germany. There's lots of battles happening. And in war, battles happen. It's an obvious thing. The hard thing when you're watching it is every now and then, there'll be like a calm moment, they're walking along somewhere, and someone will get shot. And it will boom! And it scares the life out of you. And I'm really, really squeamish. And so I have to look away, and then you try and look back, and they're still attending to it. Uh, it's a really difficult part of watching it. And as you're watching it, it's why is this happening? You kind of realize, well, in war, there are battles. And in war, unexpected things happen. And as these guys go through all these different trials, you'll see them coming closer and closer together. Now, you cannot determine whether you live or die. But you can determine whether war is going to make you or break you. You see some people in later episodes where they, they lose it mentally, and understandably so. But you see other ones have this resilience of character and they get through to the end. We're going to go into the teaching book uh, of James. James is about the battle of Christian life. It's written to the church uh, that's scattered all around Jerusalem. So after Jesus, uh, after Jesus was crucified, the Holy Spirit comes down, the church starts in Jerusalem. There was a scattering of people to share the gospel with others. Later on, after Stephen was martyred, persecution comes. It's almost like a cat running into pigeons, and the pigeons go, whee! And people in the church had persecution, and they had to spread out. Now, there were some main churches around Europe that could uh, guide and shepherd the people. But lots of these Christians were just meeting outside Palestine. They were just meeting in small house churches. And James is writing a letter to them. He is Jesus' brother. He did not believe Jesus was the Messiah until he saw him resurrected. And then he becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he loves the people. And so he's writing to them that you're getting lots of trials, you're getting lots of temptations. When things are tough, you can be tempted to doubt God. He's saying, don't doubt God. And he's saying, hang in there. And this is where we're going to pick up in our teaching series. I'm going to go into chapter 1 today. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Before I do that, I'm going to pray. Father God, trials come. They are part of the Christian life. Lord, just as in war there are battles, 
and casualties, Lord, just so there is in Christian life, trials will come our way. Father, your desire when trials come is that they make us. They do not break us. Lord, will you help that to be a reality in our lives? Would you give us encouragement from your teaching? And will you give us your grace to get through the trials? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, James is a piece of literature which is wisdom literature. Normally, if a letter has been written to a church, you can follow the, the logic pretty easily. James is wisdom literature in that it's kind of spotty all over the place. Now, it's, you can read some verses like on their own. It's just good advice to new Christians or it's good advice to churches. The main thing to remember is the very opening bit is trials can make you. And then the rest of the letter is, and here's all the ways where you can succumb to temptation or it can divide you or divide church and avoid these. Because it's kind of all over the place, I'm not going to read the text 1 to 18 all in one go, which I normally do. I'm just going to read the different sections that correlate to the different coherent points that I'm making. It's not that James didn't know what he was doing and I can make things more understandable. It's he was writing in a literary style, in a rhetorical style, which would have been really, really impactful to people. There's 108 verses in James. 50 of them contain command words. So the style that he wrote really says, like, James is passionate that you continue in the faith. James is passionate that trials make you, don't break you. And as I'm making it more coherent whole for us to understand here today, I will lose some of that. But I'd much rather we walk away kind of understanding that James is what his main point is in these verses. So, if you're in war, there will be battles. If you know people, there will be disagreements. And if you're a Christian, there will be trials. First point is, trials will happen. Remember, as a new believer, thinking, great, God's taken my addictions away. I'm going to have a really easy life. And then when trials came, thinking, what is this? But over time, we realize that God is much more interested in our uh, transformation than he is in our comfort. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 in James. You can follow on the screen in your Bibles. James is right near the back after the book of Hebrews or in your Bible apps. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to pause you there. Can you imagine calling your brother the Lord Jesus Christ? That is not something you'd do unless you really believed it. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Ooh, that is a really tough beginning. Like, greetings, and then straight in with a knockout punch. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. First point from this is, it's whenever you face trials. It's not if, it's whenever. He lived with Jesus. He knew that Jesus himself had trials. As Jesus is brother, and as the leader of the Jerusalem church, he knew that trials were part of life. So he's saying here, whenever you face trials. And what are we to do when they're to happen? We're to consider it pure joy. It's as simple as that. Uh, 
That's a really weird bit of text. What it means is focus on God for good. It's probably the best way I could describe that. So focus on God for good. So trials will happen. Response, focus on God for good. I'm going to keep reading uh, verses 2 to 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So thinking, well, okay, trust God or focus on God, but what's the good? Move down to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those who love him. Saying, have a positive outlook. Consider it pure joy is kind of rhetorical. Uh, it makes you remember it. You're saying, have a positive outlook. Trials are there to test us. Testing in the good sense of the word. Testing in terms of getting the impurities out and making us more like Christ. It's the same word that was there for Jesus in the wilderness. He was tested. And it brought out that he was going to be the obedient son. What's the reward? It's the crown of life. One of the challenges of being a Christian is when you choose to have God as your king and not yourself, it can seem like at times you've made an unwise decision particularly when you look at finances or worldly power. But Jesus here is saying you will inherit the crown of life. He is not talking about the jewel-encrusted crown, the bling of a ruler. He is saying you'll get, it's like the laurel wreath of the person that's finished the race. You'll get the crown of life. And so tests are there, trials are happening. They're testing our faith. And all we need to do is hang on in there and finish the race. When we finish the race, we'll get the winner's crown, which Jesus has won for us. And then we'll have eternity with him. And all of the trials that we have suffered, all of the testing that has happened that seems so unpleasant at the time, compared to eternity, will be like one teardrop in an ocean of grace an ocean of God's presence, an ocean of comfort. And so Jesus' brother James is saying to them, focus on God for good. You will get the uh, laurel wreath for the winner. The word testing here means proving something. It's very similar to uh, making silver, purifying silver. You mine silver, you get different bits of it. You have to heat it to an incredible temperature within a stone bowl. Heat it to an incredible temperature. The impurities come to the top, almost like a skin on a, I don't know. If you're in England, you make tea, you put milk in it. If you leave it too long, you get this horrible skin that you flick off. So it's kind of like that. It's this skin just appears on top. And the person making the silver scrapes it off, lets it all cool down. And it has to repeat this process several times. 
hating it and hating it and hating it. If the silver could speak, it would probably say, what do you think you're doing? This is deeply unpleasant. This hurts. It burns. And then again, all the impurities come up, and the silversmith will scrape them off. And do you know how the silversmith knows that the silver is now pure, that it's now ready? It's when it's in its liquid form, and it's when he can see his reflection in it. You see the similarity with Christian trials and testing? It is awful when we're going through it. But God wants us to reflect his Son, Jesus, who is the perfect reflection of God's glory. God wants to see himself in us. And he didn't give himself the easiest life. He didn't like say, I'm the Lord of Lords, I am above trials and testing. No, it happened for Jesus. He willingly took much more trials and tests than we probably ever will. And when the Lord does it to us, it's the refining love of the Father. It does not feel like it. When it's winter time, it's hard to remember spring is coming. But spring does come. And there will be a greater joy. There will be a greater vitality because of it. My application for this point, and we get it from verse 5. So in the midst of lots of trials happening, God is using it to test us, to make us. We're to ask him for wisdom. See that in verse 5? It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God loves you. And he is going to give you enough wisdom to get through the trial. The wisdom here means discernment. So we'll know right from wrong. As we go into the text a bit more, we'll see that when we get trials, it can really lead to temptation. But we're to ask God for wisdom, for discernment. And he'll help us get through. I'm going to lead us in prayer for that now. So when we're facing trials, I'm going to pray for God to supernaturally give you that gift of wisdom and discernment, whatever it is that you're facing, that you're able to take his view of it, that you're able to rest in the knowledge that it's not a coincidence, that he is not going to waste it. We can even ask him for wisdom, like, God, help me believe that you are good. When I've gone through really rough trials with anxiety, with depression, I was diagnosed with PTSD, I've since uh, healed from that. I believe God was real. I started to doubt whether he was good. But if we ask God to help us show that he is good, he will. So I'm going to pray for that now on behalf of each of us. Will you bow your heads? Father God, help me not to resent you when trials come my way. But help me to turn to you, turn to you for wisdom. Lord, help me to understand what is true about myself and what is false. Father, help me understand what is wise in the situation and what is unwise. Father, remind me of, of who you are so I may have a better understanding of who I am and the purpose of the trials and the testing in my life. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you thought the message was over there, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Well, a little bit more. We're going to continue reading in James. So we're asking God for wisdom. He then says, like, when you've asked God for wisdom, believe in God and don't doubt. That kind of means trust God. Trust that he's a loving father. doesn't mean have the biggest belief and you're faking it to God. It means trust him that he is a loving father. It says here, verses 6 through to 8. Uh, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I'm going to share with you one of my favorite memories of childhood. I had a, a granddad who was really damaged by World War II, and he drunk a lot, just as his father had done. And because of that, it entered this really unpleasant kind of abusive streak within our family. And it was really rough going. But every now and then, something bad would happen to my granddad, and it caused me so much delight. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem the story later on, but I'll share you one of these. Uh, in and around Cambridge, there are lots of rivers. And a thing that you can do, I think, uh, have we been on a boat together? I think we have. Yeah, a punt. A thing you do uh, as a family, or if you're dating your future wife, is to take a boat out on the river. If you're in Cambridge, you can watch people punting, and half of the fun as you're standing over the bridge is just watching guys trying to impress girls on dates and completely wiping out, and then giving the worst first impression possible. When I dated Shelley, someone else was punting. Uh, my granddad, we had a boat, a small boat at home, and we would often take it out on family picnics. I still fondly remember uh, my dad saying to my granddad, don't get out yet, we're not close enough to the bank. And my granddad's still having a go. And he stood one foot in the boat and the other on the bank. He's around 75. <laughs> he used to be a boxer, so he's athletic. And then the boat just moved away from the bank. And he, he didn't pick which way he was going to go, and he went straight in the water. It was wonderful. That is what being double-minded looks like. It's kind of saying, just pick a lane. Pick a lane. Like, are you going to believe God? Or are you going to doubt him? But just choose one. Don't get stuck between the two. James is saying, focus on God. Ask for wisdom from him. Don't lose your focus and focus on all of the worldly things. Let's read verse... Uh, uh, there we go. As we move into verses 9 to 11, James has put these here. He's saying, whatever trials you get, some of the worst trials will come through finances. If you're really, really poor, you'll have tremendous suffering. You'll also have temptation. If you're really, really rich, you will likely abuse your position of power. And there'll be lots of temptations. Most people, whether Christian or not, you could say if you go through some trials in your life, some good characteristics will come up. You'll see some of the, the metal that people are made of. Uh, if you give someone unlimited wealth, that's when you really start to see the fault lines in their character. And James is saying to the church here, as we go into 9 to 11, 
You're getting lots of trials for persecution. Watch out for these two biggies. Lots of wealth or lots of poverty. I'll continue. So verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Again, it's another really strong statement by James, designed to provoke a response. He is not being judgmental, but he is saying, if you're rich, watch out. You've got the biggest target on your back. So, it's two solutions. The poor take pride in your lowly status. What it means by that is, yes, you may not have everything in the world, but you have riches in heaven. Riches that will not rust, that no one can steal, that no one can take away. And it may look like things aren't working out, materially, trusting your spiritual identity in Christ. And to the rich, he's saying... Everyone will want to admire you and become friends with you because you're very, very rich. But know this, be thankful that you cannot buy your way to God. Be thankful that he has fully paid it. You'd never be able to pay it, no matter how many riches you get. And when you meet God face to face, guess what? The riches aren't there. So he's saying, take pride in a lowly position, which means you don't say it's all about me, you say it's all from him. The second thing, which is a theme throughout James, is if you are rich, you have great responsibility to do something about those who are poor. Like You have a bigger responsibility from God to make a difference in their lives. Uh, I was very much aware of that when we went to Haiti this week. There's extreme poverty there, and you are mixed, this mixture of real hope in the human spirit and then real despair at the living conditions that people live in. And with the great poverty, there is a big temptation for people in Haiti just to go to traditional religion, which is voodoo. If you feel helpless and powerless in your life, it kind of makes sense to try and get some power back. And so there's this uh, tremendous... Uh, temptation on Haitians to turn from God. But when you see people that turn to God, that it really, just from the dark to the light, is phenomenal. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, I was reminded of how much I spend in the States, which feels very, very little, and how far it would go in Haiti. So just before we went to Haiti last week, they had Scarecrow Fest, in St. Charles. Kids really wanted to go, dad, mom, dad, mom, we kind of relented. We thought the best way to save money is to buy them a bracelet and they can go as many rides as possible for a certain time. It's $25 a bracelet for each of the kids, that's $75. It felt a lot, but when we were there, it's like, I wish I had more money because people are here going on everything. When we got to Haiti, we found out that a pastor's monthly salary is $150. So now God will not judge us, 
for spending that money that way, but there carries a responsibility with it. Does that make sense? Like, we, we are an incredibly rich country. We're an incredibly affluent culture. Like, comfort is our king. And yet, there's people in Haiti dramatically going without. It's a really good book written by a non-believer. His name is Tracy Kidder. It's about Haiti. It's called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And it's a surgeon who put it upon himself to try and rid Haiti from tuberculosis. And as he's encountering really, really poor Haitians that believe in God, he doesn't understand why. He said, well, how can you believe in God when there's all of these riches from the near neighbors and then you have nothing? But how is God good? And one of them responded in something that's really intriguing to this non-believing author. And it was, God has given the world plenty of resources. There's enough resources to go around. He's just concentrated it in a few areas. And they're not sharing it like they should. And so you see how James, this was true outside Palestine in the house churches. It's true today. We are much more likely to be richer than we think. And we have a responsibility as believers. And James will go on later on about how you help widows and orphans. Have a responsibility to do something about the difference in wealth. Our application for this would be, as we're saying, believe and not doubt. Help us not to be double-minded. Is to give ourselves wholeheartedly back to God. I could give you applications for each of the parts of the message. But the real thing that James is saying to people is, you're away from big churches. However, you're connected to God. So just ask him. And so again, for this application, I'm just going to pray to God. God, at times I don't always believe. At times I find it hard to believe. At times I am blind to the injustices. At times I couldn't care less sometimes about the injustices happening around the world. Sometimes, genuinely, I will change the channel to watch a sports result instead of some other tragedy. And we need to confess that to God. We need to confess the financial focus and how that puts us into trial. But rarely does it bring out really good character within us. So if that counts for you, uh, bow your heads and I will pray on my behalf. And if you want to say to God, this is for me, follow along in the quietness of your heart. Dear God, we, we ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, you said, what good is it to inherit the whole world and yet forfeit our soul? And Lord, so often when trials happen, when we either have a great deal of money or we have very, very little. Lord, the temptation is there. The temptation is there to sin. The temptation is there not to care about others. The temptation is there to accumulate more and more and more so we can wear that jewel-encrusted crown, that we can boast that we are Lord of our lives, that we are providers. But Father, your way is the way of the cross. In the Sermon on the Mount, you said, blessed are the poor. Or do you say, blessed are you when you persevere under trials, as we'll receive the crown of life. Help us to persevere. Help us not to be double-minded. Help us to be secure in you. And Lord, when we are struggling, as I needed it in my life, when it was hard for me to pray for you, to you, Lord, will you put people 
in other people's lives that will pray on their behalf. Pray on their behalf to help them believe in your goodness more. To pray on their behalf, Lord, that they will withstand the tests, that the flame will soon go down, Lord, and that there will be a reflection of you within their character. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. So there's two kind of responses to a trial. One of them, I'm going to use this side of the room to represent sinners. Oh, sorry. Uh, Over here is your old self. Now you come to faith in Christ. At that moment you're considered righteous. The Holy Spirit is living within us. And over time we start moving towards who we're meant to be in Christ. It kind of, a couple of steps forward, a couple of steps back. But over time, when we then meet Christ face to face, we'll be glorified, we'll be just like him. When trials come, it's almost like we have an option. Do I go to my old self, my old identity before Christ, or do I go to my new identity in Christ? So a trial is meant to lead to a test, which is meant to lead to, I'm just going to focus on God. I'm going to pray to him for help believing. I'm going to pray to him for wisdom. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep reading the Bible. It's just kind of holding position. In Band of Brothers, episode 6, Bastoin, we watched it yesterday. They just have to hold position. It's the worst episode. It's brutal. But their role is to stand at the edge of Belgium and stop the German tanks advancing. It's freezing and all they're doing is standing but is tremendously refining them. We find out later on the sheer value that that had. So for us, a trial comes our way. Test means I'm going to focus on God for good. I'm going to take an eternal perspective of this. I'm going to understand I have spiritual riches, even if I can't see them, that they are there. Or when the test comes, it can turn into a temptation. So Jesus was tested. God tests people. But we can not look at God and look to really, really worldly things. This is typically our default position. Like, we know there are some things that we shouldn't do. And we know what we ought to do. But for some reason, it's easier to do what we shouldn't do than what we ought to do. So James is saying you're going to get trials. So God's testing you. It's like that silversmith, individually as a church. But don't go back to your old selves. Don't succumb to temptation. And I'm going to read the rest of the chapter which is speaking about this. It says, uh, verses 13 through to 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin What is full-grown gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. James is saying, temptations are not from God. Everything is good, from God. He is stable like the stars in the sky. He doesn't change like the sea. 
He doesn't do things on a whim, decide he's going to be good today or not good today. Am I going to be a loving father today or a mean one? Doesn't change like day to night. Saying God is stable and all good things come from him. And then he uses two birth analogies. If you've watched your wife give birth, remember some of that now. Dave Goodman, hello. <laughs> Don't listen to me. Uh, it's saying, like, sin and temptation is almost like having a child. So verse 15, then after desire has conceived. That kind of means we've been tried and we've kind of chosen a worldly way out. It says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's messy and it's really painful. And then the difference, though, is there is zero joy. There is zero relief. There is zero, oh, isn't this wonderful? Hey, everyone, come and have a look. Then it continues. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And what that means is if you keep going against God, if we keep turning our back to him, at some point we may renounce him. And when we renounce him, doesn't just impact ourselves, impacts all of our children afterwards. So a way to describe this, I'll use the analogy of wine. Wine can be a good thing as part of God's good creation. We use it in communion. It can be community building. It's often used uh, in the Bible as a sign of God's fullness and his provision. When we're under extreme stress, we can turn to wine for the wrong reasons. Some of us might turn to wine for oblivion. Some of us might turn to wine for intimacy. Now, we could have had the solution to stress through lots of other different means other than wine. But if we keep drinking and keep drinking and keep drinking, elsewhere in the New Testament, it says, like, drunkards won't inherit heaven. My granddad had a terrible time in the war. To medicate his terrible time in the war, he drank. And it passed on. I had horrendous addictions before I came to Christ. My granddad's father in Dublin had horrendous addictions. So he's saying, not, not only be your true self in Christ, but he's saying, watch out. Because it's really negative impact if we succumb to sin and then have it as our default position. The good news is verse 18, and here is the gospel. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So we have been born again in God. He is representing the loving union with him that we will have for eternity, with us in the here and now. And there may be times when we're wondering where is God, but the Holy Spirit is within us helping us. The community of faith is there, like a band of brothers. The local church should reflect the individual Christian. Testings happened, it becomes more beautiful. Testing happens in the local church, should become more beautiful. James continues later on, and we'll be picking that up next week, continues later on saying, here are the ways the temptation can work really badly. Favoritism. Uh, he says, dissension, slander, gossip. And he says this kind of starts from the top. 
says, leaders, beware. So if you have any character defects as leaders, or we're cruel with our tongue, or we slander, or we create dissension, or we convict the congregation in front of God, instead of bring the congregation in front of God. It says it causes church splits. Always happens. He says, watch out for worldliness. You might try and win people to Christ by showing them how much like they are, that you are. Yes, that's true. We all need God's grace. But if we start pursuing lifestyles that dishonor God, we're not really winning people to the faith. We are really turning people off from the faith. And then he moves on about arrogance and the like. So God does not cause our sin. But he does take ownership of our sin. I'm going to ask the band to come back up now, if you can. Thank you. By Jesus dying on the cross, he suffered the suffering that all of us were going to have to give account of at some point. And at that moment, Jesus took it all upon himself. So temptations and tests can be like purifying silver. And he took the punishment for all of our sins. But we still have trials. Why do we still have trials? If Jesus has died on the cross, if I'm going to be walking in victory, what is going on? I'm going to use the analogy of D-Day and V-E-Day. If you look up D-Day on the internet, it'll say the Normandy landings. Uh, on Tuesday, the 6th of June, 1944, the Allied invasion of Normandy and Operation Overlord during World War II. They were codenamed Neptune and often returned, uh, referred to as D-Day. The result was decisive Allied victory. In episode two in Band of Brothers, you see them dropping into Normandy. Everything goes wrong. They're scattered, it looks horrific. And they're really discouraged. What they didn't know at the time was they had dealt the fatal blow to Hitler. Then you follow Easy Company doing all of these different little battles. It ends on episode 9 and then 10. Episode 9, they go to a concentration camp. They see the very worst of humanity. And they set them free. Like we go through trials because God wants to set us free. It's painful. But he is so much more concerned with our character than our comfort. And when we persevere, even when it feels like we are going nowhere fast, persevering in the faith saves other people. If you don't renounce God in the midst of your suffering, people will come to faith because of you. It's worth it. It's so, so worth it. And so VE Day, Victory in Europe. This was the 8th of May, uh, 1945, a year later. This is when Hitler was completely defeated. That day has yet to come spiritually. Christ died on the cross. That was D-Day. He's done everything we need when trials come to pay for any form of temptation ever. More forgiveness in Christ than sin in us. But we still have trials as little battles are happening. When you're in them, they're very significant. They're painful and loss happens. But the time will come when death is no more. 
There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more mourning. There'll be no more tears. And one of the biggest lies that the devil wants is what God created for good, he vandalizes. If you are a compassionate person, if you are a thoughtful person, those are likely gifts from God, the gift of mercy to help people. The devil vandalizes it under trials and turns it into really tough anxiety, turns it into really difficult depression. And it feels like a winter time. I wish I could make spring come sooner, but I can't. But I know God is a loving Father, and He is not going to waste that. But what the devil sabotages that God intended for good, it works the other way. What the devil intended for evil, Jesus uses for the very greatest good. So whatever has happened in your life that maybe you're not proud of, or a wound, or a trauma, or a character defect, we all have them. Some are more visible than others. Whatever you have gone through, I want to invite you to hand over the evil that the devil intended for bad to Christ and allow him to use it for good. That he can look on you. God already sees perfection. He sees his son Jesus. But we would know that we are reflecting him more. I'm going to ask you to stand. As we're singing this final song, if you would like the devil uh, to have whatever he meant for evil turned to good, if you want that defeat to happen in your life, if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, we would love to pray for you. If you accept that Jesus is your all in all, if you're in need of his grace today, then let us pray for you at the front.